So the series we're starting is uh, one on the seven deadly sins. This year, we've kind of had a lot of guest speakers. It's different than, than any of the years in the kind of history of Antioch. The, back in January, in dialogue, the elders and myself, we kind of lined out a lot more guests to just uh, be able, for me to be able to pull back a little bit. And, and um, the idea was that I would be rested, but I was awake at four in the morning last night thinking, gee, this doesn't feel anything like rested. Um, but uh, we're kind of at the end of that season, and, and so I'm kind of excited just to, just to get back into a groove again. And so we've got a, a, some longer series coming up. We've got this one on uh, Seven Deadly Sins, and then starting in the beginning of the year, uh, HD principal here is going to be doing some teaching, uh, and we're going to be going into some series and do a book study and some different things like that. So uh, I'm excited just kind of for the new year and where that's going to be going. So hopefully you guys are too. Uh, the Seven Deadly Sins... Is it's not actually something that's in the Bible listed, kind of here they are. Here's sin number one, sin number two, these are deadly, and then, you know, sin number seven. Where they come from was a monk in about 375 A.D., so there was a lot of codification of Christian stuff and thought uh, after Constantine kind of made it acceptable to be a Christian in the Roman Empire, uh, the Edict of Milan in about 313 A.D., and so there's a lot of codification. There was a monk in the desert, and he sat down and wrote out eight temptations. Kind of said, if I boil all the temptations down to eight buckets or categories, what are those? And he kind of wrote out eight. And then a few hundred years later, uh, there was a pope, Gregory the Great. And Gregory the Great took the, the seven or the eight kind of temptations, and he boiled them down to seven and switched it from temptations to deadly sins. And so... Uh, kind of as history went through, these are in the history of the church, kind of the seven deadly sins. And what, what was kind of beneath it or has in the tradition of the seven deadly sins been beneath it was the, the idea that these are cardinal sins. And what is meant by cardinal uh, is simply that they're, the, they're kind of the top layer from which other things fall. So what are the sins that really are deep here and lead to other sins? What are the kind of chief sins that then uh, domino their way out? And so this morning we're kind of talking about wrath. And wrath is an interesting thing. The word wrath in Scripture or anger is usually associated with God. Of the 190 times in the Bible that you see the word wrath, uh, 160 or so are in the Old Testament, and most of those refer to God's wrath. And so we have this idea of God in the Old Testament of being a God of judgment, uh, a wrathful God, and so we tend to come to this mistaken kind of understanding that uh, the quicker we can be done with the Old Testament and get to the God of love in the New Testament, the better. Does that make sense? That's kind of the prevailing uh, conception about it. I had a, a friend, an African-American friend, when I was in my 20s. I worked with him at camp, and uh, it was funny. His mom was always on him about his Bible study, you know, almost every day. Have you been in the Bible? Have you been in the Bible? And she would be mad at him if he wasn't reading in the Old Testament. And it was fascinating to, to listen to him talk about where his mom was coming from. And, and she was really saying, son, if you don't read the Old Testament 
And if you don't understand the severity of things or God's emotions in things, then grace has no context and, and God's forgiveness and love has nothing uh, juxtaposed to it. And so if you don't read about just the severity of sin and God's kind of emotions in things, you don't really have the context for the New Testament. And I remember just pondering it and, and coming to a view that What's interesting about the Old Testament and the, the understanding or the sense of God's wrath in it is that I think we, we immediately come to an idea of God as a stern schoolmaster, right? Uh, wrath and punishment, you, you think of like some 1940s English boarding school with some stern schoolmaster like uh, whacking knuckles with rulers and, and stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about? And... There's another kind of way to look at it. And the other way I think to look at it is this. If God didn't have wrath, if he didn't have emotion, if he wasn't emotionally wrapped up in our behavior, whether we're trusting him, following him, obeying him, then he wouldn't be engaged. Uh, a parent who doesn't discipline their children, who's not engaged, is not something that we normally look at and applaud. We say by your disengagement and your just your hands offness in, in your children, you're not really caring about your kids or their growth or their development or the relationship. You're just kind of absent in it. And so another way of looking at it isn't just kind of a stern schoolmaster, but just saying God's wrath or emotion in the Old Testament shows us his engagement that he is present, that he does care. And so when we see a God who cares, and then we come to the New Testament where God pays the penalty or orchestrates our salvation, we understand that the God who cares and orchestrates our salvation really does love us. So I think we have to come to an understanding of the Old Testament that it's not just this kind of heavy wrath, but it sets up what we see in the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple texts, and then I want to kind of transition our sense of wrath. But this, this view of wrath that I'm talking about in Psalm 711, it says, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. And in Lamentations 411, it says this, the Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. God's wrath God's anger is a, a righteous, as we see it in the Old Testament, a righteous anger. It's an anger that's kindled, that's stirred up by a breaking of the covenant, a breaking of relationship, a falling away from how things are supposed to be. And so when we come to Jesus and we look at the New Testament, we see Jesus approaching Jerusalem and doing something that I think is hard for us to imagine when we're uh, kind of looking at the, the picture of Jesus with the, the blue eyes, you know, and kind of the blonde hair. Like the Brad Pitt Jesus, you know. The, I mean, if you really picture with me, if you picture the center of, a, of a, an urban setting around the temple, which is just the heart, kind of the economic heart of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, and you picture the dust and the heat the animals 
that are all around because this whole place is dedicated to animal sacrifices. You've got pilgrims. You've got you know, tr tourists, travelers. You've got all this chaos going on. And you've got Jesus with just a couple of his followers. He walks in, sees this. And the temple court is huge, right? He walks in, sees this, goes away, and then weaves together a whip made of leather. He goes in his anger, weaves together a whip, and then comes back into the, to the temple court. Just crazy. Crazy. I mean, and, and the sense you get is that he's using this whip and he's driving the money changers out. So it's not just that Jesus is, is driving animals out. He's flipping the money, uh, the tables that have people's money on them, businessmen. You know, what, do you, what would you do if someone came in to your place of business, you had all your money there, and he's flipping it and your money is going everywhere and people like little kids are sprawling on your money, stuff like that. And he's got a whip and he's cracking it. I mean, I've asked myself the question before, did Jesus draw blood? I mean, he drove out the money changers. One dude with a bunch of fire in his eyes driving out dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of men, grown men, separating them from their money. That's intense. It's a picture of righteous anger in Jesus. And what we see is there, there's a distinction in wrath and in anger that righteous anger sees a perversion of what ought to be and is angered to the point that it addresses it so that things can be restored. Do you understand that? Righteous anger, it's Jesus calling the Pharisees vipers and snakes and serpents and and just going to town on these guys and, and tone down your rhetoric, Jesus. You're a rabbi. Can you really talk like that? Like, you shouldn't be using those words. And it's a righteous form of anger because those, those people were shepherds whose job existed to lead the sheep and to make sure that they're healthy. And they weren't doing their job. They were abusing the sheep for their own gain so that they could have status. And, and here's all these sheep that are harassed. And Jesus comes in and he's angered by that. And so righteous anger addresses an inequity and tries to restore it. Anger that's a sin is the opposite of that. Anger that's a sin is when anger comes in and performs the inequity itself. It rends the fabric of, of this, uh, the kind of the community, the church, it separates a family, it separates individuals, it, it does harm, it injures shalom or peace. So there's a, di a distinction here between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. We understand, uh, so turn to Ephesians real quick and let's just, let's try and sketch that out a little more. Ephesians chapter 4. In the New Testament, we have the gospel, we have orthodoxy, which is a right understanding of what God is doing with people. It's doctrine, it's truths. And then we see, especially in Paul's letters, a lot of practical instruction on, so what is it supposed to look like when you work that 
doctrine out. When you have that in your life and you begin to live that out, what does that look like? And the word for that that we have is orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is right belief. Orthopraxy is right action. Okay? And so in Paul's letters, we see all this practical stuff. And so in Ephesians 4.26, he begins this way. Be angry and do not sin. Do not, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry and do not sin. If you have an NIV, it says, in your anger, do not sin. And what Paul is saying here is he presupposes the passions that are a part of what it means to be human. He presupposes the emotion that comes when, when something hits us, it hits a button, it, it fires us up. And anger being a, a natural part of kind of what it means to be human, he presupposes that. But what he's saying is there's something further that can come out of that that turns it destructive. That in that emotion, how you choose to handle that emotion, where it goes, is where the sin comes in. So in your anger, if you give full vent to your anger, if you let it go, it's going to eventually hurt somebody, injure somebody, or rend the fabric of kind of community or a family. And so Paul says simply, in your anger, do not sin. And he quotes Psalm 4.4, which says the same thing. Now, I think we understand the word wrath better. If we're going to talk like extreme anger, like the word wrath, we, ex- we, ex- we understand it better at a distance. I don't think anyone's coming in this morning and going, man, I got a problem with wrath. It's just, it's not, it's not our kind of cultural language for what goes on in our day-to-day existence. We don't come in thinking, um, my, my besetting sin is wrath. Wrath is something that's more a word we use when, when it's something removed from us and we put it in a category. Let me explain it this way. The further something is from you, the more you can talk about wrath. So if you're here, if something is a category way out, way out here on the edges to where there's no relationship with you or any of the people you love or kind of care about, it's easier to hate it. It's easier to have wrath for it. It's easier for your tone, your language to be over the top. What I mean by it is bring up politics at the dinner table and see if people use balanced or measured words. I'm serious. It's, it's a category or a group that you can lump together that's over there and you don't have the restraint because there's nothing in your immediate circle forcing you to be balanced so you can be extreme in your views. Talk about immigration to, heck, most people I know. And it's easy for us to lump it into a group and talk about those people and what they're doing to our country and what they're doing to to jobs and to just kind of lump it all together and to not see the face of a man or a woman or a family or the difficulties that they go through or take in all the different um, complexities of an issue, but to just objectify it and then just take our emotions and put it on that category. It's real simple to understand what happened in Germany with the Jews. Real simple. Anytime you take something out of your own little circle and you can put it in a box, um, 
our herd instinct allows us to, to kind of put a wrath or an anger or an emotion on it that is shocking, I think, if you really look at it. It's no surprise what happened in Germany. Just think of politics or immigration. That's, I think, a little bit to show us what we're capable of if we give full vent to it. But in the context of our day-to-day existence, we don't use the word wrath. We use different words like anger or bitterness. So if we come in a circle here, I don't have wrath for my wife. I don't have wrath for my boss. Um, I, I do have rage for the guy who cuts me off on the road, right? But, but your typical relational things, we don't use the word wrath. It's much more subtle. I want to look at a couple passages here. Let me just back up and say this. I don't know how to get it what I want to say most this morning, I, I, which, which is frustrating because when you try to figure out how to say what you really want to say, you try and figure out how do you lead into it, how do you, how do you go around it in a circle and come in the back, I, how do you get to it? Um, maybe just saying it's the easiest way. But I think the greatest problem facing the church today outside of porn another one that maybe I'd just say. Um, I think the greatest challenge facing us today is our relational immaturity. Our relational immaturity. I was in Ghana a few weeks ago and I was talking to a middle class couple that uh, they do an export business. Middle class kind of in, in Ghana culture and and we spent an hour talking, and it was fascinating just listening to their perspective on things. And I've known a lot of it already, but they took me deeper with my understanding of, of several points. But I, I knew already that from a typical African perspective in a lot of countries, um, what they think of America is shaped purely from TV and movies. So what if all of a sudden we found out there was life on Mars and all we had was a library full of DVDs made in the Hollywood of Mars? And so we watched these to see what's going on in Mars. Everything we knew about Mars or, or we believed to be true about Mars would be shaped by those movies, right? It's kind of the same thing. In a lot of these African countries, everything they believe about Americans is shaped by media, so here's some things they, they believe. Every American woman will sleep with any guy in about an hour's notice. Tell me that's a wrong belief based on TV and movies. It's a real crazy thing for me to think that there's so many people that have that view of America. It's like, wow, but I can see where you got that. Another view they have this couple, it was a new one to me, but this couple shared it with me, is that nobody in America works. You guys run around like having drama all the time, but when does anybody actually work? And I thought about it, and I was like, you know, you got two hours for a movie, 
what movie like spends really any amount of that time showing a typical workday? You know, the only ones that do it are shows like The Office, and the whole thing's about work, but nobody's doing any work, you know? And, and I just thought, man, that's crazy. So they're like, nobody does any work in America. Guys just run around having drama. Um, and then their view on marriage was really interesting. So they just asked me, what gives with marriage? And so I'm sitting there in this awkward position trying to explain it. And what I said was simply this. If Americans, Americans grow up in a consumer culture, radically individualistic culture, where it's all about self, we're not taught to have relational maturity. Relational maturity means the maturity to puzzle piece together relationships that always have rough edges and don't naturally plop together. You know what I'm saying by that? Like, the, a puzzle, you know, you have the, you have, you know, that shape, you know, and, and that shape, and you know what I'm talking about? Is it up there? Well, the funny thing is, is in life, the, the shapes are, you know, are not quite going to fit together. We're all messy people. I don't want you looking at my art. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, though? It, we don't naturally fit together. We all have rough edges. So how do we find relationship that lasts and not get into relationships and then every two or three years hit the reset button, run to a new church or run to a new this or start over with this because we love the beginning where there's this promise of how everything's going to just work together and fit so nicely until difficulties arise. And it's just not like that. So relational maturity is how to work in these situations to find relationships that get along. And I said to this couple, we're not taught relational maturity growing up. American kids are taught, you wrong me, I know how to wrong you better. You, you talk bad about me or embarrass me, I know how to cut you to pieces behind your back. You go find a couple friends and turn them against me, I'll find more friends to turn against you. We're not taught relational maturity. And so I try to explain to this couple, if you take two people that aren't taught how to work through problems and you throw them into a, a marriage where there's all this difficulty and then you add financial stress and everything else, it's like, it, it's very difficult. And in Ghana, they, they don't even have a word for cousin. Everyone's a brother or a sister. I mean, the relationality of the culture is so... Uh, deep. I, I, I asked about what would happen if someone was, um, like, how do you stop, say, kidnapping and rape? I was, was uh, talking to an expert on slavery, and they were like, what do you mean? How do, how, what do you mean? How would we, and I'm like, well, I mean, how would you stop? They're like, you don't understand. In villages in Ghana or in, in districts in Ghana, there's a, a chief or a local leader and everybody knows everybody, and if you come in from the outside, you, if you bring in an outsider, immediately everybody's going, who's that? And they were like, in, in Ghana, you can't take somebody, move them to somewhere else without somebody going, who's that? 
And they don't belong here. Where do they belong? And it's just a fascinating thing about the relationality of the culture. So I'm trying to explain to this couple how, how marriages in America predicated on relational immaturity just struggle. So I feel like one of the greatest issues we face in the church, likewise, is our relational immaturity. A church has to exist like a family through time. And if it exists through time, it means that what might have meant something when you came to the church, um, how, how cool the worship guy is. Really cool. You know? So, or how funny, you know, or how great that this is. What, what might have meant something at the beginning, over time, isn't going to be what allows you to thrive in that community. What's going to allow you to thrive in this community is the ability to work through problems as they come up and to deal with the disagreements and the issues in our interpersonal relationships. Our biggest problem with church, if we come up with a list, the the 20-somethings are going to say churches spend too much on buildings, they don't spend enough on the poor. If if we talk to the 40-year-olds, the churches don't read their Bibles enough, they don't have good doctrine. If we talk to the 60-year-olds, it's, hey, they've lost their sense of traditions. They don't have respect for elders. No matter what generation you talk to, there's going to be kind of a a primary thing. But beneath all of that, I would say what keeps a church united is our ability to work through the respect issues, to work through the values issue, how, how we spend money, to work through the doctrinal issues and how we promote Scripture or not. Our ability to have the conversations in a mature way that allow us to grow together. And, and I think our biggest issue is relational maturity. We're going to run out of time if we don't keep up. So let's... Here, here's what I'm trying to say. I, I wrote it down this way. Um... The problem isn't the government, the problem's not the church, the problem's not God. Okay, the problem's not the government, the church, or God. The problem in our relationships and in the harmony in our, in our, in our churches and in our families is us. There's only one person at any moment in the world that you can completely control, and that's yourself. And how we respond to circumstances is going to be huge. So... Um, Let's read a couple things. James, if you, if you don't mind, turn into James chapter 1. Here's how we begin to talk about orthopraxy and how to handle ourselves in the context of our relationships. James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. In your rashness, in your anger, in your frustration, in your bitterness, slow it down and in humility come over here and accept the word that God gives which is able to uh, save your souls. Second Corinthians 12.20, if you can turn there. 2 Corinthians, directly after 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12, 20. 
And this is Paul saying, hey, I'm afraid that if I come, you may not be as I wish, that the community might not be as healthy as I would hope for, that you're not reflecting that Christ is your head and that you're the body of Christ. I, I fear, 2 Corinthians 12, 20, that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that, you may, uh, that I may find you uh, perhaps quarreling with jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity. I fear that I might come, and it's going to be anger, and it's bitterness, it's going to be gossip, and it's going to be slander, and that you're going to be fractured. I fear that this may be going on. And so, there's, we're beginning to bring in words that say what happens in our belly when we, when we have anger or frustration in our immediate context is it looks a whole lot more like gossip or slander. See, anger is all about againstness. Anger, when it's here, looks out and it's against somebody or something or some group because there's a perceived wrong. So when I perceive that you've wronged me, there's anger. And that anger here seeks to level the playing field. And the weapon it uses is to cut you down to slander or to gossip. So my anger, here's something really fascinating about every human I've ever met. doesn't matter what your gift is or talent. Every human I've ever met is an expert at finding excuse for any emotion that they have. Anytime you are angry or bitter, you are an expert at immediately finding an excuse for that anger. We know how to justify our emotions. And that justification allows us to, to to give full vent to that anger, to slander, to gossip because they deserve it, right? It's not me that's the problem here. It's them. They started it. And I'm just paying it back. And we completely miss the fact that maturity says, no, I'm going to refrain from paying it back. And in humility, I'm going to stand here and let it lie. Because that's what's right, that's what's mature, and it's what ultimately is going to allow this thing to be healthy. Because if I keep paying it back, uh, what, did, what did Martin Luther King Jr. say? An eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. And if we justify our emotions and then act on them, we're not living out the Christ life, this new identity that says we're going to promote unity and love one another. Turn to Proverbs 19.11. Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger. Maturity makes one slow to anger. And it is to his or her glory to overlook 
an offense. When Jesus talked about turning the other cheek to Jews who were being oppressed by Romans, he was using this text as his jumping off point. It's to your glory to overlook an offense, meaning somebody slights you, somebody digs you, somebody hurts you, somebody pushes your button, and instead of responding, you overlook it. You sit on it. You don't answer in kind. You don't pay back evil for evil. What do you do? Turn to Romans chapter 12. Jesus said to love your enemies, to bless those who curse you. Paul in Romans 12 comes along, says very much the same thing. Romans 12, starting in verse 19, says, Beloved, Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of of God, his righteous anger to make right what is wrong. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To be overcome by evil means something disrupts you and you justify a response that is sin. The gossip or the slander that you do you justify even though it's sin. At that point, you have been, you have been overcome by evil. Does that, I mean, are you hearing me? If we allow that to kind of grow up in ourselves, we give way to evil. We become a, a tool of unrighteousness. We harm the body of Christ. Do you know what the most destructive thing is in a human body? Cancer. Cancer are its cells or a mass of cells that, is not, that, are, that are not taking instructions from the head. They're doing their own thing and they begin to destroy and can ultimately kill the body. We as Christians in the body of Christ, if we begin to go our own way and we stop taking instruction from the head and instead of blessing those who curse us, we justify ourselves, we allow anger to do its work so that we then act out sin. We slander and we gossip and we tear down. We begin to torch the body of Christ. We become the cancer. The greatest problem, I think, facing the church today is our relational immaturity. That we have not built up the maturity to not be overcome by evil and to act that out. Turn to James again, if you would. James chapter 3, 
Listen to what James says about gossip and slander. He's talking about the tongue. And, and so again, James chapter 3, he says this, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. What is he basically saying there? He's saying the tongue, how great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire, a strike of lightning, a match, a campfire. We live in the forest. We know what this means. And the tongue is that fire. It can literally scorch a forest. Your tongue. Do you know that every church split I've ever heard of, you can trace it down probably if you really knew what was going on to one person's tongue. Anyone disagree? One person that was overcome by evil, when they could have, they had the choice to bless and not curse or repay evil for good. Every division in a church I've heard of, every group of friends that eventually all of a sudden had a fracture and went different ways, you can trace it down to one person's tongue. You know what hearsay is? It's a real complex definition. Hear, say. Hearsay. We, we have got to be more responsible in how we handle our tongues in the body of Christ. You drive up over Sandy Am and you see some of those old forest fires, you know what I'm talking about? They're not burning anymore, but look at the scar on the landscape. That can happen by any of us through gossip. You know who's at most danger of it? It's the leaders in this church. Those of you that are leading a small group or teaching because you hear so much. And you, you're now responsible for how you act on all the stuff that you hear. I, when we planted this church, I had a church plant council, Rick McKinley, Luke Kendricks, several others. I went to Portland, and I remember they asked me, so what's going to define your church? Uh, I think I might have said this one time in five years, but you guys know what I said? I said, we're going to talk about how to handle our mouths and not destroy relationships. And I got scoffed at. They were like, really? So you got a dude in a small group, his wife's cheating on him, and you're going to talk to him about gossip. I was like, yeah, if you put it that way, it sounds kind of silly, but, but yeah. Somehow, some way, we've got to, in our community, deal with the very practical outworking of the emotions that are deep within us, these cardinal emotions, and we've got to grow ourselves up in it. And I still believe it today that our greatest challenge as a community, as your small groups, as your friends, in your marriage, in your family, is going to have a lot to do with how you handle your relationships and your interactions. Let's go back to Ephesians 4 one last time. 
Ephesians chapter 4 begins this way. Uh, the verse we read, verse 26, chapter 4, verse 26 says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Do not be overcome by evil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. Let no corrupting talk, if you have the NIV, it says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, and it may give grace to those who hear. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up the body of believers. We are charged with this awesome responsibility of the unity of the church that is the kingdom of God right now on earth. And how we talk is either going to affirm and nurture and build up, or it's going to tear down. There really are no neutral words And what we do when we're tearing down is acting out of emotions that we justify and we excuse because somebody wronged us. And what we have to come back to is this idea of I'm willing to let it go. The anger you feel, the person you hate, that relationship that you just run over and over and you play those tapes over and over in your mind, you have to be willing to let it go and stand there in humility and trust that God will save you and not save yourself because ultimately this all comes back to the gospel. Does it not? Here's the gospel. The gospel is that God is going to save me. That means God is going to save me out of broken relationships. God is going to save me out of this messy life. God is going to save me out of the history of, of destruction that I've created for myself. That God is going to save me from my enemies. That's why all throughout Psalms it talks about deliver me from my enemies. That God ultimately is going to save me from my self-loathing because I don't like my body, I don't like my education, I don't like my family, I don't like how people treated me when I was young, and it hurts. But in that hurt, in that pain, I trust and I have faith that God is a God of salvation and that the gospel means that I put my trust there rather than acting in the emotions that pay it back or try to solve it in my own human way. And so as we're looking at the church and we're, we've got the inputs and we've got the emotions and we've got the buttons, I can trust myself and I can act in a way to fix it all, but I bring further destruction or I can stand there in humility and patience and wait on the Lord. That God is my deliverer, that God is my salvation, that God will take care of me. See, the gospel is good news that you don't have to pay back evil for evil, that you get to bless and not curse, that you get to rejoice and put your hope in something that's a heck of a lot more secure than your own manipulations. I used to make a habit of whenever I really disliked somebody, I would, I would buy a book for them. I mean, I'd, I'd actually think through what's like a book they would really like, and then I'd bring it to them. And now everyone's wondering, like, this can't ever bought me a book. Um, I would bring them a book, and I'd give them a book. And it was amazing how things would just dissipate. Just dissipate. 
can, can we just rest in the gospel this morning? That God is our salvation in Christ Jesus. That we can let it go. As hard as it is, we can bring it to the cross and say, God, I can't let this go even. Take it from me. I need your help. I need your strength. But I don't want to be an agent of destruction in your kingdom. You have to unburden me of this so that I can go be an agent of reconciliation, health, and healing in your church. Antioch, let us not gossip about one another. Let us not slander one another. If you hear, hear say, stop, stamp out the fire. Challenge people. Have you gone and asked the context of that? Put other people in the best possible light you can because you know what? That's the light we put ourselves in. Don't take one thing they did out of context as if it's the only thing about that person. Let's hunger that maybe when people come find us, we look a little bit different than the television shows that represent us. Father, we, we do just, uh, we cry out for mercy. We can't in and of ourselves have the strength to do anything remotely like what we would want it to do. We have the desire, we have the hunger. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and so we just ask for strength, for guidance, for nurture, for encouragement. God, we're all affirmation junkies. We're all desperate this morning for somebody to just love us, put an arm around us, encourage us, just say that they see something good in us. I just pray you would fill us with affirmation and encouragement, just that we would bless one another this morning as we interact, as we talk, as we go about our days. Let us fill each other, others' inboxes, emails with positive notes, notes of love and affirmation. Father, just stir up a spirit in this church where we can lean on one another for strength. We, we just pray that in Christ's name. Amen.